podcast where best friends and next door neighbors, Willow and Lillian, spill the tea on murder, mysteries, and other things that go bump in the night. So get your favorite teacup ready and let's get into it. Welcome to Cruelty Podcast. This is Lillian, and with me is Willow. Hello. I don't know. I felt like saying it weird. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Well, you know, when you open up the same way every single yeah. time, you got to change it up, keep people on their toes. You don't want to sound like a robot. No. Or do I? I don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would like to report life is okay and not kicking me in the taint repeatedly. So I just want to share the good news that uh, well, good for you. Things are all right. Yeah, that's great. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say it too just loud. Kidding. Here's some wood. There we go. Please don't hurt me. Yeah. No, I've just had a really long week. And what day is it? Tuesday. It's well, here Tuesday. we go. Yeah. <laughs> I've been busy, but in a good way. All right. So, um, again, we're we're still in, of course, held in, held in captivity month. Mm-hmm. And this is a famous case, yeah. as you can tell by the title. So we're just going to get into it. Honestly, um, I got to say, this month is probably the most triggering month that we've covered for me so far. Yeah. So I would like to get the trigger warnings out Do of it, the way. Uh, yeah. Child sexual assault, sexual assault. Domestic violence, uh, child abuse, just it runs the whole gamut. Well, and brainwashing, because that's what you get whenever you hold somebody captive this long is a lot of brainwashing. Yeah, I'm just lumping that in with abuse. Yeah, that does. That does. It's abuse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, if you're, you know, if you're sensitive to these type of things, please be aware that we'll be discussing it. Now, we're not going to go into gory details. It ain't that type of podcast. Right. Well, and, and it's just there's so many thing like this case is such a very long case we don't have time for all the details no so. uh but yeah she has a couple books out so if you want those you can read her definitely books. and she does go into detail in all of her books definitely support this woman she's amazing yes she is mm-hmm. but yeah let's let's get going um yeah um i wanted to actually say before we start that one of our Patreon listeners suggested this case to me it was back in september or it was suggested to me in august for Survivor month of September. Um, for the life of me, I couldn't remember who suggested it to me. I know that you messaged me, but it was so long ago. So if it was you, um, hit me back up and let me know because thank you. I actually didn't know about this case. Um, before we had started recording, Lillian, you told me that you know you had actually followed this case and mm-hmm. knew a lot about this case. I had no idea. So like the Ariel Castro case, I knew a lot about. This one, um, for some reason, I had never heard of it. So I think um, you were probably pretty young. Yeah. When it was on TV. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in high school. See, and I was already an adult. With and I was a big fan of uh, court TV back mm. in the day when I was a single mama, and so I would just hold my babies and watch it and cry. Uh-oh. Yeah, Uh-oh. so <laughs> I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> and it, that's kind of like when it came out when my kids were very small, and so I was really like glued to the TV about right. it. Yeah, right. 
Understandable. Um, also, I wanted to add, uh, before we really get into it, that if these cases are really triggering to you, especially this one in particular, um, there is a Facebook group that I've I plugged on the Golden State Killer case because one of the survivors of the Golden State Killer actually started this Facebook group for sexual assault survivors. And so I'll have that linked. It is a really good support group. Yes. Um, so if if anybody needs that additional I don't know help. about other people, but I know that certain days I can handle triggers better than others. Yes. So if you're having yes. a bad day and these yes. things are some of your triggers, to, then please click away yeah. and listen when you're having a better day. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And honestly, just being in that group for a couple minutes and, and being with people that also had similar stories, it makes you feel less alone. And I think that's for why sure. a lot of people listen to true crime anyway. I figure that's why we're here. But yeah, just take care of your triggers and stuff. But this story is a real doozy. The story is a real doozy. So I wanted to start out because we are talking about captivity month and we're going to be talking a lot about uh, people who are abducted. I kind of hadn't really looked at the statistics until randomly tonight before I came over I wanted to look at them and around 8 million children are reported missing each year worldwide mm-hmm. 8 million that's a lot with a daily average of 2,300 children reported missing in the United States alone of that 800 of these cases are actually false alarms or miscommunications between family members um most of the time the children are found safe and a lot of times it's really just like family squabbles like yes. you know using the children as leverage taking the children away from each other that kind of thing less than one percent an average of 33 children every single day are abducted by a stranger although those numbers have been growing in 2020 almost 400,000 teenagers were teenagers alone were abducted in the united states Oh, yeah. And I'm sure it's sex trafficking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's just it's terrifying because as you watch the numbers, as the people get older, the less and less they are likely to be abducted, Mm -hmm. which is just disgusting. Gross. Fifty seven percent of children abducted by strangers make it home alive. So almost half or a little bit more than half. Seventy one percent of non family abductions happen on the way to or from school. Yes. Almost all children abducted by uh, by strangers are abducted by men, with two thirds of these victims being female, one third being male victims. And I mean, it's like across the board. They're all men that are abducting these children. Abducted, uh, abducted children are more often. I feel I feel like this is a little bit strange and I'm sure that there is rhyme to reason for it. But abducted children are more often to come from low income or separate houses. So oh, houses yeah. where the parents are in two separate homes. Um, the reason for this, because I've looked into these statistics before, because mm-hmm. I'm weird. Um, I, ne- I, I tend to not look at statistics, even though they're really, really good to understand. I just think they're It just scares me. Well, sure. It just scares and me. And this isn't fear mongering, by the no, way. No. The chance of your child being abducted is less than 1%. It's not yeah, like, likely yeah, to happen. Yeah. Um, but when it does happen, this is... This is the numbers. Um, So basically, when you have a predator who Mm -hmm. is out to abduct children, they're going to they're going to prey upon more poverty stricken stricken areas. Right. Um, It's because 
you know, there's a lot of single moms, for example. You right. can't afford childcare 24-7. Right, right. Like, in the 90s, y'all, there's a term called latchkey kids, 80s mm-hmm. and 90s. Hey. And that's where you had a little key on a string. It was yep. your house key. When you got home from school, nobody was going to be there. Right. And you have to get your own snack and wait for mom or dad to come home to give you dinner. Yeah. And so with the rise of like single motherhood in addition to both parents needing to work you saw more kids being home by themselves and they get picked on by these predators right and that doesn't mean like you should be able to leave your 12 year old home alone right this is no fault to the victims and let's be clear on that right and in this case like we'll get into it but she was just walking to her bus stop yeah there should be no i let my kids walk to the bus stop yeah by the way yeah when they were little. Yeah. Because it was like a safe neighborhood. Yeah. Right by an elementary school. Their mm-hmm. walk was less than a block away. Mm-hmm. They could see the bus stop from their house. Yes, like, I could too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, so, you know. So we're saying this to say that there, sometimes there are no safe measures. There's just really terrible people out in the world. Mm-hmm. And those are the people to blame. Yes. There's no blame on JC's mom. Oh, no. None, at all. None whatsoever. No. Absolutely not. So the story takes place June 10th, 1991 in Myers, California, just south of Lake Tahoe. Just a beautiful area. Lake Tahoe is just gorgeous. Oh, yeah, it's gorgeous. Uh, J.C. Dugard Dugard is 11 years old, and she is on her way to the bus stop. She's in the fifth grade. It's a Monday, and she is looking forward to school. She lived at home with her mother, Terry, her stepfather, Carl, and her toddler baby sister, Shayna. Her parents had split up when she was, uh, actually before she was even born. Her dad didn't even know about her, but um, her mom's new husband, she wasn't very close to him, like her stepfather. She wasn't very close to him, but he, by all accounts, he was a nice guy. He was a good person. Some people said that she like thought that he didn't like her very much, which I think that that was just kind of an adolescent insecurity because especially with another baby around yes yes that's very understandable common Um, feelings because yeah no this this man really did care about her and it and it shows in his actions later on um but her and her mother on the other hand were thick as thieves they were best friends and they were new to the area they had actually moved to Myers a year prior in 1990 from LA because they thought it was a safe place to raise their family and that just really breaks my heart Myers California is according to Wikipedia is a small unincorporated community much like ours Um, it used to be it's a town now it just turned into that yeah I wanted to add that in because you know you know what it's like to Live in a, a yeah. It's just like a neighborhood. It's connected like to nothing. Yeah, just a, a place in the woods. We don't have no. a government. We don't have. Well, I mean, we now, now we have police, but we didn't a few no. months ago. Um, it's actually located right at the inner elbow of California, so it's like right there in like the little tri-state area. Um, beautiful landscape. I had to look it up just to see what it was like. And it's just wilderness. It's just huge ass trees. Um, Lake Tahoe's right there. So it's just like the world's best sunsets. It's just gorgeous. She remembers her mom in a hurry that morning. She had rushed out the door, trying not to be late for work. And she had forgotten to give her daughter a kiss goodbye. JC took note of this and was planning on giving her mother a hard time later when she got off work. Um, And kind of just, you know, mom, you got to give me a kiss next time. You know, that kind of thing. 
she got dressed in her favorite all pink outfit and her favorite ring, her butterfly ring that was in the shape of her birthmark. The one thing on her mind as she walked to the bus stop was the upcoming middle school uh, end of the year field trip to a water park. And she's a growing young girl. She was really nervous about wearing a bathing suit in front of all of her friends. And she was planning her big moment to ask her mom if she could shave her legs. Oh, I remember those days. I know. <laughs> I do too. Well, I say that. I never actually asked. I was like so... I was, I mean, I have really dark hair. I was so hairy in school. People used to make fun of me. And I used to take my mom's razor and sneak shave. And my mom, at, when I was 10, was like, when are you going to shave? And I was like, God. <laughs> I don't know. Never now. <laughs> I won't define We just it. have, like, separate inappropriate mothers. Like they're, Yes. They're inappropriate yes. in different ways. Yes. Terrible. Just terrible. <laughs> um, but no, her mother was a great mother. Uh so her bus stop was just up the road from her house, like I said. And, I mean, it's pretty much you could see it from there. She was taught, just like I was, to walk against traffic on the side of the road. So that way the drivers can see you. And um, so she went up the road, crossed the road, made sure she was on the right side. She's processing all of this. She's thinking about what she's about to say to her mom. She's not noticing that a car drives by makes a U-turn behind her right in front of her driveway and then comes back up from behind her. So scary. Her stepfather was outside of the garage and he saw the whole thing. Oh, my God. He was right there. See, I've, I've completely forgot that detail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know what he was doing in the garage. Just putzing. I think he was like about to like water the plants or something. It was like first, it was like eight o'clock in the morning. So, um, yeah, I don't know exactly what he was doing, but you know, later on he would really kick himself for not having his car keys in his pocket. That was, you know, that was the main thing that he took from it. Um, so he saw the whole thing. He tried to chase after them. Obviously he couldn't get into the car. So he grabbed the nearest thing, which was his mountain bike. And he biked up that hill to try like as fast as he could to chase after this car while they're taking JC away. And he just couldn't paddle fast enough. He couldn't get close enough to get a solid view of the license plate, but he got a solid view of the passenger and the car. And he saw the whole thing take place. So scary. So terrifying. The children at the bus stop that was just a couple yards away from JC. They also saw the whole thing. The whole thing happened so quick that like all of the children just kind of froze. Like they they didn't know what to do. They could barely even like scream. Like, you know what I mean? It just happened so quick. It it put them into shock. And they would after like after this, they would have to receive years of counseling, lots of therapy to get through this. Yeah. Um, And yeah, the school like made sure of it because it was just a really big ordeal. Um, They had been asked several times by law enforcement exactly what they saw that day. And for the most part, it was really hard for them to describe their children. You know, it's not like they could tell you like what make and model the car was. You exactly. Know? Like I didn't know what cars were when I no, was. No, hell no. I'd be like greenish, grayish blue. 
<laughs> I don't know. You know, and like you're so young that especially in a, in a situation like that that's so shocking, memories can imprint, you know, it's just it was really traumatizing for them. And you got to remember, they're short. They're kids. They can't see up over that hood. They couldn't see you know, who was driving the car or really get a good eye of the perpetrator. And that's their friend, you know? Like, you got to think about how, like, how much of a burden that is on those children to think that, you know, they're always going to think that they could have done something. If only I could have remembered more, I would have saved Exactly, exactly. Um, And and it's these types of of victims that we don't really think about or we don't pay attention about these, these adjacent victims that are kind of like in the ripple effect of these crimes. Um, it's, it's the kids at the bus stop. It's the stepdad trying to chase down the perpetrator. It's the teachers and the family members and the people that are working constantly without any sleep searching for these victims. It's these people that are also victims themselves of these perpetrators. Um, now all she remembers, all JC remembers is that she was walking up the hill. She can see her bus stop when all of a sudden out of nowhere, a car pulls up and he doesn't just like pull up beside her. He like cuts her off. Like he pulls off on the side of the road in front of her, like perpendicular to her path, completely cuts her off. And she assumes that he's going to, ask for directions. So he rolls down the window and she approaches the car. And before she knows it, he sticks his arm out and she's, she feels this heat rush all over her body. She's instantly immobilized. She couldn't scream. She couldn't move. She just froze. She lost her bladder and fell to the ground. When she fell, she's still dizzy. She's fading from consciousness. She She's been jolted from a stun gun. Jesus. 11 years old. And as she falls to the ground, she's trying to like, you know, she's in and out of consciousness. She's trying to like, like crawl backwards and brace herself backwards to get away. As she's fading, her hand touches a pine cone on the ground. And, and then she blacks out. And, and this pine cone serves as such a huge anchor for her mentally in this story. This last this last thing that she touches before she's held captive, this pine cone, holds so much importance to her. She thinks about that pine cone all the time throughout her, her time in captivity. So much so that, you know, now that she's out and, and, you know, now that she's safe, she actually, like, on her website, she has pine cone necklaces, that you can buy and like pinecone charms and things like that. It's kind of become like the symbol of her hope and of her success and of, you know, the thing that was kind of holding her to her home and her reality. Yeah, I get it. And Makes it, sense. it's just a really, really beautiful, um, a really beautiful part of the story. Now the man scooped her up and he placed her in the floor of the backseat of her, his car and he sped off. His wife was in the car with him, and he covered she he, she covered her with a blanket and held her down. JC would drift in and out of consciousness during the three-hour car ride back to Antioch. That's California. a miracle that stun gun didn't kill her, right? And she was she was fading in and out of consciousness that entire time because of it. That's fucked up. It's terrifying, and yeah, I mean, it's a stun gun to the chest. That's her heart. 
right there. Um, she remembers them stopping at some point, probably for gas or something, but she remembers the car being, being off. The car was stopped and the engine was turned off. Her throat was really dry and scratchy, probably from screaming, but she hadn't remembered screaming. They lifted the blanket off of her head and she makes a mental note of how normal looking her captor is. He just seems like any other guy that she'd be she'd see walking down the street or at the grocery store, you know, out and about. He just looked so normal and non-threatening and it just it was so strange to see such a plain and nondescript person that looked safe abducting her like it just it seemed very strange to her he asked her if she was thirsty and he offered her a drink saying quote you don't have to worry about germs i've got two straws and i just feel like that's the first time in this story and in the many times to come that he constantly tries to make her feel at ease and feel comfortable in the most like gross and sadistic ways you know what i mean it's Mm -hmm. like (sighs) He, he starts off by saying this almost as if like, no, I'm looking out for you. Thanks. Yeah. So she takes a drink. She falls back asleep. And as she's falling back asleep, she overhears him laughing with the woman in the car saying, I can't believe I've gotten away with it. And then she passes out again. The couple in the car were Philip Garrido and his wife, Nancy. Nancy is a real piece of fucking work, but Philip, dude, he's so, he's, he's sick. They're both really vile. He's, but Philip in particular is a sick fuck. So it's unclear exactly what happened in his childhood that could have made him this way. Um, Very little known is, is known about his adolescent years other than he was very likable in high school. He was an aspiring rock musician, which I'll have linked some of the songs anyway. Um, He had a motorcycle and a lot of people attribute his behavior later on to a motorcycle accident that he had when he was 16 years old in 1968. Um, and and it, it's something that we see time and time again. There was another story, and I can't remember which one it was. It was definitely one that I researched, but here we are. Um, <laughs> uh, where there was a motorcycle accident, and he hit his head, and after that, he just turned into, like, a, a murderer. In this case, um, a sexual deviant. And, and that it really did seem, and there was no records that I could see of any actual doctor saying that he had brain damage, but it was very clear night and day, um, uh, personality change. Yeah. And I do like to point out, um, as somebody who, uh, had a stage four TBI, which is a traumatic brain injury, mm-hmm. it is the worst you can have. Yeah. Um, and I went through years and years of rehabilitation therapy, all kinds of stuff, uh, just because you have a head injury doesn't mean you're going to murder people and yeah. sexually assault people. Yeah, I have several. Um, it's yeah. to note, though, we, we only mention it because it is mentioned in the research. Yes. And yes. Um, that's what all of his friends and family say. Is there a correlation between violent crime and head injury? Kind? I mean, sometimes. Sometimes. There can be. There can be. Yes. But just like uh, any mental illness or disability or injury. Right. right. Uh, well, well, you know, outcomes vary. 
Right. And so I don't right. want you, if you're sitting there as, as a survivor of a traumatic brain injury thinking, you know, don't don't feel offended. That's not at all what we mean. We're right. just sharing the information. Right, right. And I also added, you know, the stuff that, you know, we don't know about his childhood because that could have had something to do with it as well. There could have been things that we don't know about have happened to him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but a lot of people attribute his deviancy to this motorcycle accident. I think... I'm going to be honest. I've, I've, I've read that before, and I mm-hmm. feel it's a little too convenient putting a ribbon on it. Right. Um, I, I'm going to guess if I you know, were to put money on it, um, it's a variety of factors. Right. And if we're not able to know his past. Right. We have I, no idea. We don't have any idea. There could have been a lot of things leading up to this, and Absolutely. maybe the injury could have just triggered it to be like full full blown or something like that. Exactly. We, have, we, we just really don't, don't know. know. I mean, it, it, I think... In a lot of like true crime media, you find that people are desperate to find the reason why right. these things happen. Right. And I'm going to tell you all, without like funding and research and a more kind attitude toward mental health issues, mm-hmm. we're just never going to find the answer. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the, it's complicated is right. the answer. It's right. complicated. Right. And I do understand the natural want and need when you hear stories like this to get to the bottom of it. You want to know why the fuck would something like this happen? And you want to rhyme to reason. It would would feel better for this all to be the cause of an accident. Sure. Than for this guy to just be... Is that innately hiding in human beings? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you'd feel better if you're like, well, he was a victim of child abuse because there's the reason. Right. But I think ultimately the reason is always between whoever did it and God. Yeah. We'll never know. Yeah. Well, speaking of God, after this incident, this this accident that he had, he begins talking to God. Like like you do. Like like more than like you do. <laughs> ah, I see. Yes. Me and God aren't um, speaking terms anyway, so I fine. definitely don't. But no, he goes on long rants about these full blown conversations with God. And he becomes very sexually violent. He starts going really, really hard into um, drugs specifically. I mean, obviously weed. I think everybody smokes weed, but um, psychedelics really hard. So the psychedelics are mixing with this. He starts building this alternate reality at this point. Well, and I and I will say this as much as you know, I'm a fan of psychedelics, and I think the great work they do on healing the brain, yes, um, especially absolutely. with PTSD and depression. Small doses, not just small doses, because I actually find heroic doses to be pretty good too. Mm-hmm. However, it's a psychoactive drug, so if you have any underlying right. psychological issues, right. you don't want to fuck around right. with that shit. He was later diagnosed with schizophrenia, so there's that. You definitely don't want to do psychedelics when you are schizophrenic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's just not good. Um, but yeah, he he really gets fixated on these quote-unquote conversations of God. They will go on for the rest of his life and only snowball much worse from here on out. Um, he ended up getting a bass guitar and converted his parents' backyard garden shed into a soundproof quote-unquote music studio. Um this is just a whole lot of foreshadowing, but in this music studio, he would, he would play music. He would blare music, but at most of the time he was either in there smoking weed, doing drugs or masturbating like a lot. That's so gross for me to say out loud, but 
there were rumors that he would lure young girls into his shed, offering them free drugs only to sexually assault them. He told his father that he was absolutely obsessed with the idea of having sex with virgins. That's what his father said. And, and, and like he would boast about this, like he would boast about how, how much he wanted to do this. So already we're not off to a good start. And this is like, he hasn't even graduated high school yet. He would meet his first wife, Christine in high school. And after he graduated in 1969, he basically went to doing full like drugs full time. He ended up selling drugs to just to take more drugs. And he ended up getting arrested just a few months later for possession. Christine had no idea what was really going going on behind the scenes while they were dating. But around this time, he started masturbating in public, oftentimes in in parking, like going up to school parking lots and and watching the children play. He's clearly really psychologically disturbed. He's very, very, very ill. Very ill. He would expose himself to the children, Uh. like open up the car door, and he would begin peeping Tom. Peeping Tom? He, he became a peeping yes. Tom. Is the <laughs> I was like, I'm trying for. to make that a verb, and yes. that doesn't work. Ain't a verb. Um, he began watching women undress through their bedroom windows, and yeah, it, it just it became very out of hand. He became just constantly doing things in public and really getting a rise out of it. He and Christine ended up moving to South Lake Tahoe whenever he was 20 and the two of them got married. So up until the time that they got married, she had no idea who he really was. And as soon as they got married, the monster came out. Yeah. Christine worked as a dealer in a casino and Philip played music. Christine bought him his all of his music gear, his bass guitar, his amp, all of all of his gear. Basically, paid for everything with the money that she got from the casino. Basically, he he bled her dry of every bit of money that she had, and just to start this music career. And it it wasn't a career. Just trust me. Um, and she was treated much more like a, a servant than a wife. He he just treated her poorly. She knew that she'd made a mistake marrying him, and she tried to leave, but he told her that if she did, he would hunt her down. He'd find her, and he'd bring her back. Lovely. So, yeah, she couldn't leave. So, in 1972, he was arrested for drugging and sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl, though the charges were dropped because she wouldn't testify. She wouldn't testify because the next day, Philip's attorney told this young girl that he'd, quote, make her look like a slut. That's fantastic. A 14-year-old girl. His lawyer and that guy should have been put in jail then and there forever. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But these grown-ass men. Threatening this child. Mm Mm-hmm. Disgusting. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the charges were dropped. In 1974, a couple years later, Philip joined a quote-unquote successful band of the area. I didn't get a name, so I don't really know um, how successful they were. But the band members all said that that he was really out there. He was constantly on psychedelics, constantly talking, constantly talking about a lot of crazy shit. 
he started talking about this quote-unquote black box of thoughts that he had and it was unclear if this was like a physical object like an actual black box or if it was like this thing in his mind black box of thought I don't know I don't know um but he talked a lot about this he'd get super high and just talk about all these weird fantasies one in particular was that he wanted to be quote-unquote like a Roman emperor with unlimited power so that way he could enslave young girls and and nobody could do anything because he was the emperor I just wonder what would compel you to say any of that out loud he's like I just really want sex slaves as and everybody's like, okay. <laughs> and they're like, I want some Doritos. This is too much information. Please shut up. No, like, and I'm going to be honest here, y'all. If you got a friend that you're hanging out with and like, I'd really love to enslave young girls, call the fucking police. Just don't let that hang out there. I'm sorry. I, mean, I think, I, and I, I don't want to That's ever. It's not locker room talk. I That's know, crazy talk. I know, it really is. But I think a lot of people just wrote him off as being. Harmless, but kooky. Yes. No, yes. anybody who, say, who has the brazen, unmitigated gall into a group of people, you're supposed right. to professionally play music with, and you're like, you know what I'd like to do? Be right. a big pedophile. I think I'd just go ahead and say, hello, police. I think maybe you should keep your eyes on this guy. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Well, they didn't do that, but they did kick him out of the band. Well, excellent. At least one good decision was made somewhere in this story. <laughs> At least somebody took a stance somewhere. I take um, a stand against you wanting to do that. It's creeping me out. Yeah. But still, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how often do these guys tell on themselves? And then well, nobody does jack shit. Yeah, I see it a lot with um, just abusers of all kinds yeah. getting away with bar talk. Yes. You know, they, they, they sit elbow to elbow with a guy at a bar and all of a sudden they're chummy best friends because they had a couple beers together uh -huh. and they're just talking abusive nonsense, yep. bullshit yep. about beating women or X, Y, and Z. Or sexually assaulting them or, or whatever. Yeah, and, and boasting and, and dudes are like, oh, well, it's just... We're just bros. Just Phil. It's just being Phil. No. Y'all are being vile. Yeah. And you need, look, there are good guys out there. I know I said there but aren't. I have a lot of male friends and, and some that are, you know, acquaintances, but a lot of them have made mentions of this, of yes. where they're just like, oh, but that's just, that's just Joe Bob. That's how Joe Bob is. I tell you, that's a, that's the fast way to not be my friend anymore. If you won't stick up for us when we're not around yes. and you're going to talk about yes. us like we're cattle or trash, yes. then frankly, I don't want you to be my friend. Absolutely. So dudes do better. Mm -hmm. And to do better, you just when like buddy Bill, Phil at the bar is yeah. like, oh, I'd really like to say derogatory, horrible things. Turn and say, maybe shut the fuck up or i'm gonna knock out your teeth yeah i'm gonna shit your teeth for a mm -hmm. week pal i don't know just saying yeah absolutely so then this better kind of shit examples. doesn't happen better examples you'd be good examples for everybody mm -hmm. else mm -hmm. ladies also find that hot i hear yes we might find true. it hot it's very appealing it's nice <laughs> so um after he got kicked out of the band he and Christine moved to Reno. They rented a small warehouse. Oh, this makes me sick. Okay. He told Christine that the warehouse was for musical rehearsals, but we all know better than that. 
He took big rugs and hung them from the ceiling, creating sort of a maze that you had to walk through at the entrance. How fucking scary. That is scary. Um, The maze that you went through emptied out into a small makeshift room. It had a dirty old mattress with a sheet and and a dirty fur rug covering it, trying to, I guess, make it look sexy. Yuck. Um, Along the walls, there was a table that had a display of arranged sex toys, dildos, handcuffs, Vaseline, scissors, bottles of wine, stacks of porn magazines. And he also had stage lights and a movie projector. Uh, It's just you walk in there. It's just nightmare time. Just, yeah. Just nightmare time. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't smell good. You know you're in danger. It's just bad. It reminds me of those old like those um like those scary haunted houses that you go through with like the strobe lights uh-huh. and people jump out with chainsaws that don't have chains on them. That's what it sounds like, but this is real. This is a real horror. This is uh it's this worse. This is way worse. Yeah. So in 1976, he abducted a 25-year-old woman, took her to this warehouse and sexually assaulted her for 6 hours. He would have continued, but luckily he was interrupted by police. An officer had seen the the door to the warehouse slightly ajar, and he decided to investigate. This is in an area where there was a lot of, like, abandoned warehouses, and he had just recently bought this. So I'm sure this police officer assumed this was an abandoned warehouse. Yeah. So he saw the door open. He goes in, and he finds them the way that they are. And Philip proceeded to tell the officer that they were just having some consensual sex. Meanwhile, the girl that he abducted ran away. Yeah. He's like, Oh, it was consensual. She's like, bye. Um, no. And then runs off and tells police everything. Yeah. Tells them everything. And he should have never seen the light of day after this shit. Girl, I guess my blood boiling. He was arrested and sentenced to 50 years in prison for kidnapping and an additional five to life charge for sexual assault. Okay. Mm. Go ahead. Make me mad. That's simmer. During the sentencing, he even went through psychological evaluations and was diagnosed as a sexual deviant. So it's on his record that he's a sexual deviant. It also later, he went through um, some other psychological tests and it showed that he was um, not, I forgot what they said. It wasn't a drug addict, but he was like, he was sexually charged with drugs. It was like, it was the thing Um, because later on he'll try to say that acid was the reason why he was doing all of this. It never made me horny. It just made me weird. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, he, they, they ended up, sorry, I'm just so mad. It's hard to say it out loud. Had they kept his sentence, we wouldn't be discussing this case. Nope. Had they kept to his word, had they done what they said they were going to do, we wouldn't be discussing JC Dugard, but instead the justice system failed all of us failed Philip Garrido and here we are. He was let out of prison after only serving 11 of the 55 years. Disgusting. Not even 11. It was like 10 months or 10 years and nine months, 11 months, something like that. 
But while in prison, Philip divorced his wife, and one of his inmates, one of his cellmates that had befriended Philip, introduced him to his niece, Nancy. So he meets Nancy while he's in prison at Leavenworth. Don't. She was described as a soft-spoken and very shy woman. She was also a member of the Jehovah's Witness Church uh, cult. And so when he started writing her letters from jail, talking about how God had ordained them to be together, like it was, you know, God told him that they were supposed to be together. She believed and ate up every single Yeah, she's already been indoctrinated. Yes, absolutely. So this was more than what she could have dreamed of or asked for. Um, Even though she lived in um, in Denver, she actually ended up, she was a nurse's aide in Denver. She actually ended up marrying him in October of 1981 in Leavenworth Prison driving from Denver and eventually she ended up moving to California to be near him. Again, he got out in 1988. They married in 1981. So she was married to him for almost a decade before he got out of prison. And while she, while she was married to him, she was living in California with his mother. Jesus. Yeah. And they would go up to the prison together and yeah, it was just a whole thing. So he was let out in parole in 1988. His parole stated that he had to live with his mother, Pat. So the whole time Pat was there. I mean, she ended up dying at at a certain point, but, um, and he had to keep a steady job steady income he had to submit to searching and regular drug tests he also was required to take substance abuse classes and keep up with mental health counseling and therapy yep when he was first released he sent he was sent to a halfway house in oakland and put into a community treatment program for sex offenders the woman that he kidnapped and assaulted the woman that was the reason why he was in prison. She worked in Oakland. That's fucked. Yeah. And she had no idea that he was released, especially this early. No one told her. And so he just randomly showed up at her job. She was working at a casino close Poor by. thing. I bet she was terrified. And the, it, it get, it, it's really hard for me to breathe through this part because it's happened to me before. Yeah, I've had similar happen to me as or well. Or my, yeah, abuser, abductor, like, just came shows up, up to my, my work. work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she was working at her, you know, table at the casino and he walks by with a drink in his hand. He takes a big sip and he goes, you know, Katie, this is the first drink I've had in 11 years. She looks up, sees him, and as he's walking by, he makes direct eye contact and smiles and says, I'll see you again, Katie. He should have gone back to jail right then. Oh, it makes me want to, like, cry and throw up at the same time because mm. that happened to me and it yeah. sent me into a full panic attack as well. And I'm sure that's what happened to her. She had no idea. She called, she was pissed off, obviously, and she called his parole officer and was like, yo, what the fuck? His parole officer said something to the effect of, oh, don't worry, he's like a sick puppy. He's likely to re-offend, but he's not going to come after you. Oh, okay. Excuse me? I mean, he didn't, but thank God, but still. It's not the point. What the fuck? He's likely to re-offend. Then why is he out, sir? 
Uh, overcrowded prisons with black yeah. people with minor drug offenses. Oakland. <laughs> Oakland, California. So after this time in Oakland, he moved his wife, Nancy, and mother to, mother Pat to Antioch, California, where he bought a house with a large backyard and immediately got to work. He started building an eight-foot fence around his property. He added metal bars, just like a jail cell, for extra security. Tarps covered so that way nobody from above could see he built a 10 by 10 soundproof shed and ran electricity from the main house out to the shed. From an aerial view, which I'll post the photos, um, you can tell that his lot is like the size of two lots. Yeah. And there's like a very distinct line in between the halfway point. He basically cut his lot in two by placing a divider line of plants and... So as you like walk out in his backyard, all you see is a line of shrubbery. You think that's the end of his backyard and that's it. But just past that shrubbery, you'll find an entire compound. Mm -hmm. It was later called, quote unquote, the secret garden kidnapping campground. And that is so eerie to me because yeah. the secret garden was my favorite book growing up. I really loved it too. Oh. So his aging mother, um, I believe that she had... Um, dementia or alzheimer's but she she was basically just deteriorating from old age inside she never went outside and she never had any idea what her son was doing in the backyard um but nancy did nancy was in on it and jc was a present from nancy to philip mm. fucking disgusting gross now apparently she either wasn't that into sex or maybe she knew that like she loved Philip, but I don't know how she could, but knew that Philip wanted children and not her. I don't know. There was talk on certain um, certain people that covered this case mentioned that Nancy wanted children but didn't like sex. So she said she was okay with it as long as Philip had babies with them. I don't know. Either way, Nancy was basically in control of that trip. She knew where to go ahead of time. It's likely she kind of, um, like, it's likely that she had already sharked this scene. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's likely that she already knew that there was bus stops in the area. And Yeah, that's my point. They they do case the, the area before they typically snatch a child. Yes, absolutely. And I do believe that Nancy was the one casing the area. I do too. And brought Philip as a gift. I agree. So either way, June 10th, 1991, they were more than prepared for JC. They had everything at home ready and prepared for JC. When JC's stepfather chased after them on the bicycle and was unable to catch up with them, he ended up going to the nearest neighbor's house. He used their phone to call 911 and the children simultaneously at the bus stop, when the bus pulled up, they were just screaming yeah, screaming at the bus driver, um, complete hysterics, saying that you know somebody had just grabbed JC. Within minutes of the nine one one call, an alert was broadcasted, and luckily JC's stepfather Carl had taken good mental health or good mental note of everything that he had seen. He was able to describe the vehicle, even though he hadn't caught the license plate number. Um, he was able to give some very good details. So the broadcast stated. A bolo. It said for a two-toned silver Ford with a male driver and a female passenger 
with jet black hair and olive complexion between the ages of 30 and 35, traveling with a girl aged 11 dressed in pink. The car is a late 80s, early 90s Ford Granada. So like I said, it's one of those things that if the children were the only ones that saw it, they wouldn't be able to say for sure. But luckily, Carl was there because he was able to give that kind of information. Mm -hmm. And if y'all hear a bunch of crazy booming in the background, we're having a thunderstorm. We are. I love it. It's great. I love them, too. So as the male driver made that U-turn right in front of their house, um, you know, Carl wasn't able to see the driver at that angle. But because of that U-turn right there, he was able to get that good look of Mm -hmm. Nancy throughout that entire turn. And she, like, stared him down through it. And he was able to give um, a composite. Like, they were able to do a composite based off of his descriptions and the it looks just it like looks her. Just like her. And it really it's scary. Does. It looks like something from like a horror novel. Yes, it does. It's very I terrifying. Agree. So, um, for some reason, police either didn't do as I heard from different sources that they did do some roadblocks, but they didn't do enough or they didn't do any at all. Either way, it wasn't enough because they didn't catch them. But. Instead, they teamed up with surrounding state law enforcement and began going door door to door asking about leads. And I don't understand why they did this, because time is absolutely crucial. They should have shut off all exits to the, to the city. Um, but they didn't. They started going on foot door by door. It just it wasted so much time. They didn't get any leads, uh, but helicopters circled the area. They had police with dogs, police on horseback searching the forest. News stations and radio stations reported about her abduction uh, pretty much immediately. It was like breaking news. They gave out descriptions of the car and physical descriptions of her, but they kept her name private at first. Her school went into lockdown just in case the abductors came for more children and the children who witnessed the event were rushed to the counselor's office while the news reporters and worried parents gathered outside the school because, again, they only broadcasted descriptions of J.C. Blonde hair, blue eyed little girl wearing pink. How many girls do you think fit that description? How many parents are out there with heart attacks? Worried. Um, the whole town was in hysterics. Everyone was searching, but with no calls for ransom, no sign of JC, everyone was on high alert and kind of expecting the worst. They held press conferences and created a hotline with for any information. JC's mother spoke for the first time begging for her child, which she would do for nearly two decades. The FBI would get involved, but nothing really came of it. America's Most Wanted aired an episode on her, which after this case was closed and actually when um, uh, the the Cleveland abduction happened, John Walsh spoke with JC at a, a press conference for the Amanda Berry, Gina De Jesus, oh, yeah, yeah, and I Michelle Knight. That. Yeah, they actually talked about that. And he... Uh, John Walsh made mention that he had covered Amanda Berry's case. And when he found out about Gina De Jesus, he was like, these have to be linked. They have to. And everyone told him that they weren't, that they were just runaways. But he was like, hmm. Anyways, I thought that was really full circle that J.C. Dugard was able to be there. But um, most of the people thought that J.C. was probably dead at this point. In a couple days, they were like, nah, she's gone. Um, and within a few days, the police quote-unquote, scaled down their search. They always do that shit. They really do. I mean, if there's not any money in it, 
They can't waste money. They can't waste time. They can't waste resources. Well, I mean, they have other shit to do. I mean, I understand that. Um, but as, geez, as, as a parents, mother, you can't understand that no. in your moment of grief and no, terror. That is the one thing that you care most about. Yeah. And her mother didn't. Her mother did not give up one second. The community ended up putting pink ribbons all over town because that's JC's favorite color. Um, trees, lampposts, electric poles. Even her classmates put a pink ribbon on her chair. That's pitiful. And kept her seat open just in case. Her mother and stepfather would divorce under the stress of it all, and her mother, Terry, would never give up hope. Though, even through the sleepless nights and, and the mental health concerns, she fought and fought and fought for her daughter's return. She organized vigils, marches, and handed out flyers, constantly keeping her name alive, constantly thinking about her, constantly praying that she was alive and that she was okay, and that each day that they'd see each other again. And actually, it was very serendipitous that the day that she was discovered um, was just like, I think it was like less than a month from the 18-year anniversary, and they had had a vigil for her 18-year anniversary of the abduction. Um, And I just thought that was really serendipitous but so back to the abduction day june 10th 1991 jc ends up waking up when they finally reach their destination she's been held captive for about three hours now and it's only going to get worse obviously from here before getting out of the car philip turned to jc and told her that if she kept quiet she wouldn't get hurt Then he put a blanket over her head and carried her inside. And once they got inside, he took the blanket off her head and told her to sit on the couch, which she did. JC had decided to mentally document every little detail about her captivity. She noticed that he was very tall with bright blue eyes and brown thinning hair, a long nose and bronze skin as if he'd had a lot of sun. It is California, so I guess that's normal. But he, she looked around the room, and she noticed that he had two cats. She asked them if, he could, if she could pet the cats. He told her that only if they came to her could she pet them because she wasn't getting up. He showed her the stun gun again and reaffirmed that she understood that if she tried to run away, this is what she was going to get. And then, big trigger warning. He led the little girl into the bathroom. He ordered her to undress, which she didn't want to do, especially in front of him. She never, she didn't really understand what was about to happen. She, of course, was only 11 years old, so how could she? So he ended up undressing her, and she just froze. He told her to touch him, and... She didn't really know what to do. She was just kind of in shock and obviously terrified. So he told her that he wouldn't do anything else to her that day once he was done with that. She asked if she could at least put on her clothes once they were done, and he laughed at her. He said no. Disgusting human being. She held her hand behind her back because one thing he didn't realize was that she had her ring on still that little butterfly ring in the shape of her birthmark. That's pitiful. This ring, she would hide from him for 18 years. That's amazing. When you see the ring, it's oh, it just gets your heart. She knew that if he had found it, um, if he had found out about the ring, that he would take it. So he, she hid it. She kept it safe. For 18 years, she would only take it out when the coast was clear. 
and she would hold it and just hold on to hope, keeping faith that one day she would be set free. JC pleaded with him to let her go. She told him that her parents didn't have very much money, but they'd pay a ransom if he would just get her back. He just smiled and put a blanket over her head and led her out, out of the bathroom and into the backyard. And with the blanket over her head, she couldn't see anything around her, but she could feel the ground beneath her feet. She wanted to try to gather every detail she could. She heard a train in the distance. She felt the ground under her feet change from indoors to outdoors, grass and sticks and rocks, anything that could possibly help her find her captor if she was ever set free. So this whole time she's in captivity, she's making mental note on high alert of every little thing that she witnesses. Good for her. So intelligent. He led her to the building in the backyard that she'd later call the studio, where he made a makeshift bed out of piled blankets and instructed her to lay down and told her um, he was going to put handcuffs on her. She pleaded with him not to do it, and he... And she promised that he wouldn't, she wouldn't run away, but he was like, mm, I don't trust you. And he was like, you know, these aren't going to hurt that much because they're furry handcuffs. It's okay. Just disgusting. He warned her that if she tried to leave, not only would he know, but the Dobermans outside guarding the shed would also know. And they were trained to attack. I don't believe that he ever had Dobermans. I no. think maybe like a neighbor close by probably had a dog that yes. barked all the time. But to her, there were Dobermans outside. Yeah. And in these situations, you believe everything they say. Because you have to. Your life is in their hands. Yes. And they've already proven how much they can do. And she's a fucking child. Yes. The lock, um, the lock on the door to the shed would be one of the most triggering sounds to her. Even this, even to this day, a grown ass adult, um, all like she could still hear it in her mind. So he handcuffed her. He laid her down, and he left, locking the door behind him. She cried herself to sleep that night, even though she said that she tried so hard not to. She didn't want to shed a tear for him. She also didn't want to make her face sticky. That was one thing that she really considered was that her hands were handcuffed behind her back and if the tears rolled down her face, they would make her face sticky and she wouldn't be able to wipe her tears away. So sad. Just so fucking sad. She laid there and just listened to all the sounds around her, anything that could be of use to her mother to help find her and her captors. Lawnmowers, the train whistle in the distance, the helicopters flying overhead just listening and taking mental note of everything. Her first night there, she saw the moonlight through the dirty towel covering the window. She thought of her mother and their debate over the best moon phase. Do, do you have a favorite moon phase? I like when it's a little bitty toenail in the sky. That's my favorite. It's that tiny slither. Just a that little sliver, sliver of moon. Yeah, tiny little sliver of the moon. That's my favorite because it's actually one of like, like it's like the strongest light at that refraction angle that's what i've heard as incorrect full moonlight is strongest well yeah. whatever i don't know anything but that's my favorite moon phase i just like it because it's cute her mother's favorite was the was the crescent um and jc's favorite was the full moon and they would have this cute little debate over which one was best and that night she just saw the moon 
light shining through the window and she sat and she thought about her mom and she thought about that debate. She thought about the song that they used to sing together. The song goes, I see the moon and the moon sees me. God bless the moon and God bless me. And they would sing that every time they'd watch the moon together. And that night, while she looked out at the moon, well, she saw the moonlight. She couldn't see out the window. But as she was looking at the moonlight, her mom was sitting outside too, looking at the moon, thinking of her daughter. And this is something that they would do several times over the 18 years. They would even remember specific dates that they would have done it. Well, that's so weird. And, and many times they would actually be looking at the exact same moon at the exact same time. And it's just so beautiful and it's just so poetic because in this moment, especially for JC's mother, you know, she has so many people coming at her from all different angles telling her that, you know, JC's probably dead, mm -hmm. that she needs to give up hope, that she just needs to come to terms with it. And she almost seems like to other people, um, you know, kind of having a mental breakdown for believing that JC is alive. Some people think that that's just, you know, that's, that's just a sad mental condition, basically. Um, but she knew. She knew that her daughter wasn't dead. She knew that she was out there, and she never gave up. And I'm really glad. For the first week of her capture, Philip was very nice to her. He played games with her. He never he didn't touch her the first week. He made silly impersonations. He tried to make her laugh as much as possible and really help her feel comfortable. And this was the beginning of the brainwashing to make her think that she, that he was really just a nice guy and that he was her friend and that he wouldn't hurt her. But after the first week, he did. He came into the shed, he brought a milkshake, and he said that from now on, things are going to be a little bit different this time. Trigger warning, I'm not going to go into it, but she talks about during this first sexual assault that she watched a trail of ants leading to her milkshake that she didn't touch and just disassociating and just watching that trail of ants, just knowing that her life is never going to be the same again. As he left, he told her that it would be easier next time if she didn't struggle. It's so, gross. yeah. So she learned to just disassociate. She would turn her mind off. She wouldn't, so she wouldn't have to endure the pain. Eventually, he brought her a TV and would allow certain channels, but most of the time she was just watching jewelry infomercials. <sighs> Poor thing. She gets really used to this treatment after a few months and he takes her from the 10 by 10 shed to another building basically once he knows that he's kind of got her um in this sort of i don't know habit um he told her that the angels had told him that she was the cure to his problem, that by doing this, she was saving him from all the other children that he could be hurting. So part of her brainwashing is that she is doing a good thing. Yeah. Saving other kids yeah. from her fate. And what do all children want to do? Just good. Save the day. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. He'd get super high on really cheap speed and he'd go for weeks on end on benders. He would lock himself in this room with her and stay up for a week at a time. 
That's terrifying. All day, all night. He was tinkering with this weird machine that he built. Um, He said it was this box that he could speak to angels with or speak to God or whatever. It it was like a machine with a motor and a fan and like headphones hooked up. It was, I don't even know. But it basically made white noise. And he called it his black box. So this may be the black box that he was talking about. He'd make JC put on the headphones and listen to this machine and be like, you see, you hear, you hear what they're saying. I'm like, she would have to like play along and be like, wow, you're so smart. Jesus. <laughs> Cause he, I mean, this would be weeks on end and he would just be rambling and rambling about all kinds of weird things. He'd cut out pictures of little girls in porn magazines and like make collages Ooh. with them. He would, stay up with her like I said in this room all week high as hell doing all kinds of crazy shit like not just sexually assaulting her which he was but also just talking just talking and talking and talking it was absolute madness and JC just had to endure it sometimes he'd weep and sob and apologize to her for every little thing that he's done he would hold her and just cry and just talk about how terrible of a person he is which would only make her be like no it's okay well that's what she thinks is expected of her I'm well sure. yeah and i mean that's, the, that's just that's the general human, response yeah and that's yeah. a natural human inclination too. right but over time especially as a young adolescent growing in this because she's growing up here yeah you know, this is all part of like a, a her bra- conditioning a, a, and brainwashing. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Grooming. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, over time, he threatened to send her away to the sex trade where people would lock her in cages and do even worse things to her. And he kind of painted this picture that like, yeah, this is not a very great situation that you're in here, but out there it's way worse. It could be so much worse. And it was the fear of the unknown that kept her in his grasp, I guess. Like, yeah. it was the fear of the unknown that that really kept her compliant. It, it was terrifying to her. Because if this was as bad as, as it was, and there was worse, she didn't want to face that. In contrast, Philip would also play with her emotions and her love for animals. He would bring her a kitten, tell her that it cost him several hundred dollars, that, you know... I care so much about you that I would spend all of this money on you. Here's this kitten. And then she would love the kitten. And, and, you know, this would be her friend. And then all of a sudden he'd have an excuse for the kitten to be gone. You know, it's just like the Ariel Castro case. Yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. She, she was given a lot of kittens and then they were taken away and he would say things like, Oh, well the cat peed on me or the cat scratched me and I had to get rid of it. She was just constantly left in this cycle of like, like excitement and then let down and heartbreak. She had a cat named Tigger. She had a cat named Snowy, but her favorite cat was a cat named Eclipse. I love that name. Um, She loved her, her cat Eclipse so much that she asked for paper and pen so she could start a journal about her cat. So she could write about her cat. That's pitiful. She wrote in one of her journals, quote, last night I started to cry and she heard me and she came and sat down next to me. And after that, I felt a little better. It's so pitiful. Sadly, the kitten would go just like all the others. And when Philip found her journal that she was writing, he noticed that she had written her name 
at the top of one of the pages. He got super mad about it and had her rip out her own name and told her that she was never allowed to speak that name ever again. Which is why in her book that she later on writes, the first line in her book is, it says, let me get this one thing straight. My name is J.C. Dugard. And I just think that that's beautiful. That's so strong. That's her taking her power back. Mm-hmm. At one point, Nancy came out to the shed and brought J.C. a teddy bear, a Barbie doll, and some chocolate milk. She was very lonely and instantly thought of Nancy as a friend, which is just not true gut wrenching yeah because yeah you know she was just as fucked up as her husband jc made furniture for her barbies out of the chocolate milk cartons nancy would bring her meals and cry and hold jc and you know just psychological torment basically saying that like oh i wish she weren't in this position and and would cry and and act like she was so upset Mm -hmm. you know she would say things like i wish philip would have had a headache that day that he fuck bitch it's like no you don't you brought him there yeah no kidding but this was just another way for nancy just to to torture mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. nancy would also go to the park with philip and Philip would uh, bring his guitar and sing. And Nancy had a video recorder, which she would videotape. She would make it look like she was videotaping Philip playing his guitar. But in reality, she was zooming into the background, videotaping other people's children playing at the park Yeah, for hours on end. There were countless videotapes, hundreds so of fun. videotapes of just other people's children playing at the park, little girls on swings, all of it. And she even had a video of a little girl that she had taken by herself, Nancy, by herself, without Philip, had gone to a park, taken a little girl into a van and video recorded a conversation between the two. That's so scary. So fucking creepy. That little girl did not get abducted, thank goodness, but it was almost They're like just dry runs. Yes, that and just like little presents. That's the equivalent of like, you know, me going to the grocery store and grabbing you your favorite drink. Ugh. Isn't that disgusting? It is. Uh, and it's terrifying whenever you see that. I mean, I'm not going to leak that footage, but uh, I have seen it and it's it's gut wrenching. In 1993, Nancy came to JC and told her that Philip had gone to stay with a rich friend on an island. But Philip had failed a drug test for marijuana and went back to prison for a month. During this time, Nancy was in charge. She continued to keep J.C. hostage. But she wasn't, like, as physically abusive. But she did continue to keep her hostage. So she didn't help. Um, She would lock them together in the same room at night and force J.C. to watch some gory movie that J.C. hated. She was like, this is gory and scary and gross. But she made her watch this like one specific scary movie just over and over and over again. So weird. Yeah. Um, She would leave in the morning to go work at her job as a nurse at a retirement home. You just never know. I know. You just don't. It's just creepy. Um, And then she would lock JC in the shed while she was gone all day with nothing. And then she would come back, feed her, and, you know, keep her locked up with her. She, yeah, she just, she wasn't, she wasn't, she never sexually assaulted her. She never hurt her, like, physically. But mentally and psychologically, very abusive. On Easter Sunday, 1994, 
The Garritos took JC off of her handcuffs for the first time, brought her into the house, set her down for her first cooked meal, watched Ten Commandments. <laughs> Moses. I know that's like your favorite film. Um, it's not my favorite film. <laughs> I Do that. I enjoy I it? That. Yes, because the overacting is quite hilarious. And it's, Yule Brenner's hot as fuck in that. It's like biblical Twilight. It is like biblical Twilight. It is. <laughs> I feel like I'm on weird drugs when I'm watching yeah. it. So they watched that and uh, then they sat her down and told her that she was pregnant. She is 13 years old and four months pregnant, and she has no idea what any of this is. Poor little thing. So for the next few months, they have to basically school her on everything pregnancy-related, on everything, you know, giving birth. They're watching TV shows. Uh, oh, Phillip but she's is, terrified. Oh, God, I can't. I mean, I was 17 and pregnant, and I still, it was terrifying. Um yeah, he's watching birthing videos. She's watching TV shows. They're, like, trying to plan ahead because they're not going to a fucking hospital. Well, of course not. By August, she's now 14, and she's locked in her shed by herself. She's watching Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, which same girl. <laughs> I love that show. I used to watch that show. Oh, my God. I watched every episode. That actress is hot as hell. She really was. It Damn. really solidified my bisexuality. Um Locked in this backyard shed, she starts to go into labor, but she doesn't know. She She has no idea. She's in pain. She doesn't know why. Yeah. Yeah. She's just riling in pain. And for hours, she is going through labor. She has no idea what's going on. And Philip and Nancy ended up coming home. She labored for another 12 hours. So dangerous. After they came home. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with the baby. Philip then remembered that there was this thing that he saw once where if the cord is wrapped around the baby's neck, you have to stick your hand up in there and get the cord off their head. Yes. Which is what he did. And that baby came out alive. It's a miracle. It's an absolute fucking miracle. Um, she had a baby girl. Philip named her Angel, which JC was like, yeah, that's appropriate. She was an angel, absolutely. Three years later, uh, three years later, JC gave birth to another daughter, Philip named Starlet. And after the two girls were born, pretty much Philip eased off. Pretty much as soon as those two girls were born, the sexual assault stopped. Hmm. I'm not sure exactly why. I think just a flip switch, a or switch maybe he just got old, like you know, and just like maybe. your libido goes down as you get older. Maybe. I mean, he, he was aging, but I think that there was something that turned because now JC is, you know, getting closer to becoming an adult. She's a woman. She is now a woman. She's not a child. So I think he's turned off. Um, but either way, I mean, that's great, but the brainwashing really starts to go into effect at this point. So, you know, JC is completely taken, her name is completely taken away from her. She now has to go by the name Alyssa. She got to pick her own name and she picked Alyssa because she li- she liked Punky Brewster. And Alyssa, is it Milano? I no, think that would be, uh, Alyssa. Alyssa Milano was in, uh, Who's the Boss? It's Buffy. No. No. I'm, I'm sorry. I said, Who's the Boss? I, I don't remember. Alyssa Milano was in Who's the Boss. Okay, well that's, it was, it was off Alyssa Milano, so yeah. whatever, I'm getting mixed up. 
either way, she was like, well, if I can't be JC, then I want to be Alyssa Milano. <laughs> that was precious. Yeah. Um, and she would end up, you know, or they would end up brainwashing not just her, but also her two little girls into believing that JC was her their sister and that Nancy and Philip were the parents. Yeah. JC, like Amanda Berry, um, which I forgot to mention that episode. I was kind of kicking myself later. Um, they made like a makeshift school mm-hmm. for the little girl in the Cleveland kidnapping. They did the same thing in this case as well. They made like a little campground school with like a couple tents. And um, I think they turned another one of the buildings back there into like a little school room. They, I mean, she really did her best. She had a fifth grade education, but she did her best to homeschool those those two girls and um later on like they finally got internet so she was able to answer their questions a little bit better um and i just think that's it's so precious that she tried yeah you know she really did put her best into it um and they would all go out as a family like once the girls were older they would go out as a family they were actually seen at a carnival and some other like really big events um and of course, you know, at this time, JC Duger does not look anything like her missing poster. She looks nothing like the age progression. Um, her hair had actually gotten darker with age. So she was more of a brunette at this point. Um, and, and a lot of people asked her, like, why didn't you run away? You were in public. You could have just ran away. Call being brainwashed, y'all. Run away where? Right. How? Right. With what money? Right. Where are you going to go? Are you going to take those girls? It's that's a lot a, harder to run away with two little girls. Yes, it is. So you're going to subject them to homelessness and starvation? And she has yeah. no idea what's out there. She doesn't know. She has no idea. Uh-uh. And she has no idea who could possibly be in this sex ring that he's talked about. He's you know made up I mean? a bunch of shit she had no choice but to believe, and he used it to control her, and that included keeping her from running away. So nobody should ever ask her why she didn't do I don't anything. ever want to hear that question Mm-mm. again. Mm-mm. Because also, she didn't believe that even if she did run away, she didn't believe that law enforcement would do anything. I don't blame because her. Because they didn't. Because they fucking didn't. I'm mm, I'm going to reel it back a little bit because my blood's going to boil and I already have high blood pressure. But the, the, the police failed this entire time. The entire justice system and mental health and like health system failed this entire everyone in this case. He had 60. 60. Mm-hmm. Six, zero. Yeah. 60 home visits uh-huh. by police officers. Police officers entered his home 60 fucking times. Head ass. Over a decade. They never went out back. They, they never searched his backyard. They should have. A few times they even saw JC. One officer was even reported as asking her her name. She said, my name is JC. And he said, do you live here or are you visiting? And she said, no, I live here. No red flags, no nothing, no further questions. That's okay. You're a sexual deviant, and you can just you have, have this, children. Just in this your... little girl in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No fucking questions asked. Yeah. Disgusting. It is terrible. Disgusting. <sighs> Makes my blood boil. So, law enforcement and parole officers had so many chances to save her over the 18 years that she was held captive that it's still like there's, there's still even like news reports about this today. Yeah. There is still like blog posts and 
like even now um she hosts classes on how to teach law enforcement officers how to fucking do their job so no other little girls have to go through this I think that is such a big step for her. That is not her responsibility. It is Mm -hmm. not something that she should have to do, but she does because she cares about other people and doesn't want this to happen to anybody else. Amen. Now, I, I know that I say very often on here, fuck the police. I will stand by that. That'll probably be on my tombstone. I'll say it so much, but, and I, and I want to say that in regards to a lot of the police officers in this case, for sure. A thousand percent. Um, and 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 I say a cab all the time. Yes, I say a cab so much. A cab, even Charlie from Twilight. A cab, my pillow guy. A cab, Arkansas senator right now. Um, a cab, whoever is responsible for paid school lunching. Um, a cab, a lot of motherfuckers. You know, a lot of motherfuckers could fall under that term. All cops are bastards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A cab, my pillow guy. He wasn't a cop. I, I don't care. There's, there's, oh. That's what I mean. You know what I mean? I, I, like, I, I was not following guys. you. Oh, well, just fu- we could just say, fuck them. Well, yeah. <laughs> ACAB does not stand for these two officers I'm about to talk about. Well, as we always say, when I say, uh, all, yes, all men and uh, ACAB, of course, y'all, there's going to be exceptions. But unfortunately, the rule, like a few bad apples, Spoiling the bunch goes right. for apples, not cops that kill people. And that's that's yeah, that's the thing here is that I will I will stand by all cops are bastards. I will stand by fuck the police because I don't like murderers and I don't like um, rapists and I don't like people who are violent offenders. And oftentimes, most of the time, those are synonymous with cops. So until those things change, I'm going to stand by those acronyms. Mm hmm. But I will say that the following two officers that I'm about to talk about are not part of that. They are good. They are good. Yeah. And they did their job. And they still, they do end up going on to teaching cops how to do their fucking job, too. And they're women. I'm just going to add that in there. Not that it matters, but. It do and it helps. Um, so, yeah. And, and this is also one of those weird ways. I love it when these types of stories uh, where the trash kind of takes themselves out, where like the perpetrators like get themselves caught. Uh, I just I feel like it's so tasty. Um, but yeah, this is this is basically what happens here. So it had been 18 years of capture. JC is about 29 years old at this point. Her daughters are 11 and 15. It's August 24th of 2009. And Philip is very obviously and publicly having a psychotic break. He shows up at the San Francisco FBI office and drops off a four-page essay about that he had written about some wild ideas that he had on religion, sexuality, and schizophrenia, allegedly suggesting that he had discovered a solution to his problems. Okay. Which is probably keeping one captive, because that's all I can assume um he goes on after he leaves the fbi office he goes to the university of california in berkeley with two of his with his two daughters the 11 year old and 15 year old he takes them with him he later says that they are like in training to do what he does i don't know yeah um He begins preaching about all of his weird discoveries that he has. And Berkeley special events officer Lisa Campbell came up to him and spoke with him. Now, she had had many years of 
experience as Cleveland law enforcement. So she she knew what somebody having a, a, a mental breakdown was what it looked like. Right. She knew kind of what drug induced psychosis looked like as well. So she knew what she was approaching yeah. when she did. She was prepared. He told her that he wanted to host an event. He was like, oh, wonderful. You're the event coordinator. I need to coordinate an event. And she's like, okay, what's your event? And he just spouts off a lot of nonsense. She's like, I don't know what this means. Yeah. She still to this day has no idea what the event could have been. No. Um, it was, I guess, about this book that he was writing. Um, but she told him, like, okay, well, we'll meet. Let's set up a meeting. So they set up a meeting, uh, a time and place for the next day, and he left. Once he left, she told her supervisor, Allie Jacobs, Officer Allie Jacobs, all about her icky feelings that she had about him. She was like, mm, something's not right. These girls looked very uh, pale. <laughs> they live in California. Why are they, like, translucent? And um, they were just really strange. They, they, they vibed strange she had concern and it was one of those things where you just can't put your finger on it but you feel it and I just want to say before I go further that going off feelings as a police officer who is armed is usually not something that I would suggest you know what I mean because a lot of times mm -hmm. you have um I don't know brutality but in this case she needed to follow these feelings and I'm glad that she did so she goes she talks to her, her um her commanding officer who, because Lisa had just transferred States from, um, Ohio. So she hasn't had her full license yet. So she's kind of like not really in charge of making big decisions. So she has her supervisor come in and sit in with the appointment. So that way she can say, okay, do you see any of these red flags that I see? Cause I'm seeing them. What should we do from here? So her supervisor like kind of acts like she has a desk on one side of the room. Um, she'll have a desk on the other. And so when they come in, it looks very normal. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like an interrogation in any way. Right. And she just kind of observes. So Philip comes in with his daughters and it was a show. It was a show. I mean, he didn't stop talking the entire time. He went on and on and on about nonsense with his book and stating out loud in front of his daughters that he had charges for sexual assault. And the way he said it was very boasting, as if like talking about all the things he had done in his life. And he went past it so fast that it was just really natural for him. All of the other women in the room were just like kind of in shock that that mm -hmm. had even happened. Now, the whole time the cops are trying to get the girls to talk, the 11-year-old um, would talk to the officers, but the 15-year-old would not. She would actually keep her hands with her palms on her thighs and her eyes up, either looking at the ceiling or looking at her father. She would not make eye contact with the cops. She always placed herself between her father and her, her sister, and it was very, like, robotic. Anything that she said was rehearsed. Yes. And the 11 year old kind of was just, I mean, she was a child, so she was like super excited to be talking to anybody. So she was more open to talking. So as they were talking to Philip, one, one would talk to Philip, one would talk to the kids and they would kind of go back and forth yeah. that way, trying to get Split whatever up, information. Kind of, yeah. yeah. So, um, one of the, the, the youngest ended up telling the officer that they lived with an older sister named Alyssa. And with all of these 
strange things that he was saying, all of these red flags, the officers had to let him go because there was no physical evidence to hold him. But Officer Jacobs contacted Phillips' parole officer when he left and asked him about all of this strange behavior. She was like, yo, is this guy just like really weird? Or like, is are these things that I've noticed something that I should be concerned about? And then she brought up the two little girls and then talking about an older daughter named Alyssa. And as soon as she said that, the parole officer was like, hold up. What the fuck? Who now? Who? Because she was like, does he have children? He was like, absolutely not. She was like, does he have a niece or anything? And he was like, "Mm, let me check. He checked, called back. No, he doesn't. Mm -mm. There is no reason why there should be children in his household. He does not have any family members that are children. And so that was kind of where all the pieces fell into place. The red flags were all bundled up together in a nice little bouquet. And the parole officer ended up going to Philip's house, ordered him to come to his office the next day to talk about what happened at the campus. And for some reason he did. And for some yeah, reason, that blew my mind too. he brought everyone with him. Oh, dude. He went to that parole office to talk about that. He brought Nancy. He brought the two daughters and he brought JC. He basically just brought them all there. Wrap the package. Here you go. He was so sure of himself that he had brainwashed them, that he was just like, see how innocent I'm in? This is so innocent. Well, that and I think he had brainwashed himself. I do too. You know? Yeah, for sure. He bought his own bullshit. He did. Yeah, absolutely. And it took a lot of interrogation to not only get him to admit what he had done, but also to break down the Stockholm syndrome Mm -hmm. on JC because there for a while she was still stuck in it. She was still very adamant that this is a good man. He's a good man. He's changed. Right. Cause it'd been about 10 years since he had assaulted her. So, you know, she, she really was stuck on that. And she was like, no, my name is Alyssa. Poor little thing. I know. And after several hours, she finally broke. She was like, no, like they they kind of, you know, got the evidence. They got her missing posters and everything like that. And she was like she she admitted that she was J.C. Dugard. And from there, she got on the phone with her mother and oh. was able to say, Mama, I'm home. Come get me. I can't oh. imagine. So, yeah, you saw the trial. I um, did. It, it was all over the news, apparently. One thing about it that really makes my stomach turn that just kind of shows you who JC was or is as a person. Part of the evidence that was submitted to the state was the countless videotapes that Philip Garrido had taken from inside of the building that she was held captive in. Mm-hmm. She watched every single tape reel to reel and there was countless she wanted to make sure that frame by frame she was the girl in those videos and not anybody else she wanted to make sure that he didn't take anybody else captor captive wow fucking incredible oh and something that i just remembered that i didn't mention i didn't even write it in my notes um one thing that was really creepy about philip garrido before i get into the sentencing he had made a printing business and he had actually helped with some of the printing of some of the flyers and helped with um there was like a flyer that was being printed for like suggestions on how to find missing people and he was like you know what you should do and like actually gave them suggestions Jeez. It, ew, it just makes my stomach Yeah, turn. it's gross. Um, 
Yeah, everything about this man is disgusting. There is footage. I want to link it because I want you to see how gross this is. During the court hearing, he's caught on video glancing over at Nancy, so proud of what they had done. He's beaming. He's so proud. He looks over at Nancy and mouths the word, I love you. Gah. Absolutely disgusting. He was sentenced to 431 years in prison. Nancy was convicted and sentenced for 36 years. Unacceptable. She should have gotten life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I, I really hope she doesn't live that long. Now, JC today, she's alive and well. She's tried to keep her kids out of the media. I can't find a single picture of her children, and I don't suggest anybody go We're not going to try. Nope. Because um, her wishes are that her kids remain out of the media. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They, ha- they have so much healing, and so does she. Now, one thing, I will link her um, website. It's J-J-A-Y, letter C, foundation it's linked below but uh she has an amazing website definitely go check it out um she does therapy through rescue animals which i just think is so beautiful that's definitely something i would i would do if i had all the money and, and everything but she took her love of animals and her desire to heal and created a foundation where people you know, from all walks of life can come and interact with farm animals, horses, especially, and get that additional type of therapy. And she's absolutely changing lives. Um, She did start the Leo program, L-E-O stands for law enforcement officer. And here at her, um, at her facility, she does do training for law enforcement officers. So that way they never make these mistakes again. And I really hope that, these types of programs are started worldwide, but especially in the United States, because we just have such a very terrible issue with um, standards. And um, I'm proud of her for not getting mad. Like I know her mother did. And I know like I would, um, you know, I don't know how she does it. I I will stay mad. (laughs) Um, But she has learned how to somehow forgive and learned how to teach in order to correct these mistakes. And I just find her absolutely amazing. And I, I just, I think she's great. Yeah. Amazing story, amazing woman and amazing strength. And I definitely encourage you all to visit her website um, in, in supporting her, um, those, those pine cone necklaces, um, definitely support her and, and are, are just a really wonderful, um, you know, fidget toy that also means hope. Yeah. So I will not be doing business time today is because we are, you know, we don't want to spend too much longer, but I will tell you if you want to see case photos, we do not put those behind a paywall. They are on our Patreon. Please check out our discord. If you'd like to discuss cases in real time, also not behind a paywall. And other than that, just don't be scared of the link tree. All our links are there. Please click it. Just click it. Mm -hmm. The discord invitation never expires. We learned that. Mm-hmm. That's something and if you need learned. any resources outside of Discord or direct messaging us, um, our Instagram has a resource section for anything that you may need. Yes, so. and uh, I love you, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Find us on your social media platform of choice. 
Linktree slash cruelty has all of the links. Check out our Patreon for exclusive episodes, merch, ad-free episodes, live ghost hunts, and much more. Please be sure to subscribe. New episodes are uploaded weekly. Thank you so much. See you next time. Music and production by Willie B.